The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're talking about fire, in particular, wildfires, how they spread and how we manage them, but also the deeper history of wildfires on our planet and how they've been shaping our world for a long, long time. Later, we'll check in with one of the organizers of this year's March for Science, happening April 14th. But first, let's talk wildfires with a geologist. Hello, and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Andrew Scott, an emeritus professor of geology at Royal Holloway University of London. He has co-authored and edited several academic books on fire, including Fire on Earth, An Introduction, and published over 225 papers. His newest book is called Burning Planet, The Story of Fire Through Time. Andrew, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you very much. So I think before we start, we talk about fire through time. Let's just get everyone on the same page as to some of the basic kind of fire science. Um, so one of the sections you have in the book, you talk about the kind of different fire triangles and the different um, kind of models of how fires happen and what fires yeah. need. So can you give us a primer on that? Yes. Okay. I mean, the basic thing is often... Um, people are quite well aware that if there's a fire, you know, how do you put a fire out? You might smother it with water or you put it a blanket over it or sand or something. So already you've discovered some of the aspects of fire. Fire essentially needs three parts. It needs a fuel, something to burn. It needs oxygen and it needs heat. And so obviously when you've got a, a fire starting, you need, you need something like a, a plant to burn. Um, and then you need a heat source to start it off. And you very often in the natural world, something like lightning strike provides a very high intense heat source. And then of course, what happens is this is a chemical reaction burning. And so the plant material breaks down into say, for example, methane or carbon monoxide, it breaks down its component parts. Those um, gases mix with oxygen and the oxidative process takes place. But that process, that chemical process, essentially gives off heat and light. So therefore, it's an exothermic reaction. So that provides the heat for the, for the whole um, process to be a chain reaction. So the only way to stop it is either to run out of fuel, to um, change the heat source, in other words, get rid of that, or you might provide a situation where the fuel becomes um, more difficult to burn. So that's why you might flood it with water, because then the heat is trying to evaporate the water rather than break down the parts of the plant material. So, so basically, those three elements are there, and that's the that's the sort of a basic triangle. So that whether you're dealing with a, a, a fire in the natural world or you're dealing with a fire in your home, you know, you've got the same three three major elements. So. Whenever you're going to talk about fire, then you need to think about those three things. And I think that's the, that's the basic where we start. And then you can take it in different triangles up through into the landscape. But that's, those are the three fundamental ones. So that, that's our starting point um, of having a fuel to burn, having enough oxygen around in order for that chemical reaction to take place. And you need an initial heat source, at least, um, to start off the chain reaction. And when we're talking about the idea of forest fires, there's sort of another level up where there are some other factors that can influence once a fire gets started, how a fire kind of acts in a landscape. Yes, I, I think you then get into the whole right realm of the nature of the fuel, how much fuel, 
how the f how the fuel is organized, if you like, um, how wet the fuel or dry the fuel is, or for example, there are other aspects such as the weather. For example, wind, for example, can be a, a major factor, or even temperature, of course. So you tend to get um, fires after very uh, long, hot periods because that has the effect of drying the fuel, not just drying dead fuels on the um, forest floor, for example, but actually making um, some of the, the plants drier altogether so that, so that there's more chance of a fire get started. Because obviously one reason why you don't get that many um, fires in, say, the, the Amazon is that it's quite wet. And so when a lightning hits a tree, unless that tree is dead and dry, um, much of that energy, if you like, from the lightning, from the heat from the lightning, goes to evaporate the water in the plants and it's dissipated very quickly and doesn't therefore break down the plant material to provide the gases to cause the chain reaction to occur. So you can look at it at several levels, if you like, up. And so then when you start to think about how fire spreads, it depends on whether the vegetation is changing across the landscape. It depends on how the topography is changing. Um, and, and so on. So that you get into a whole number of different levels. The idea of topography having a big influence on the ability to for forest fires to spread was actually something I hadn't thought of too much. So what kinds of topographies are kind of are more friendly to fire, as it were? Oh, well, fire likes, if you like, slopes, because, of course, you often get updrafts up a slope. So you can actually spread fires going up a slope much quicker. So, um, yeah, those, those can be a real problem, um, where you've got a bit, uh, you've got actually a bit of topography and flat and flat lying areas. It, it can, it moves slightly differently, but certainly where you've got updrafts, you can provide, can create a lot of problems. The idea of wind as well being a, a big impact of how forest fires spread is something that might be a bit counterintuitive when we think about how, like, you know, you blow out a candle on a birthday cake, but. Yeah. In the you wrong can, kind of context, wind yeah, is a big problem. You look, at, you look at the other way. What do you do if you've got a, a fire going out? You sort of certainly blow it briefly, um, and it, and it, it reflames. It's because you're adding oxygen. <laughs> so uh, you're you're actually yeah, be careful because the, the blowout of a flame is, is actually a sudden impact of of of, of a way of trying to extinguish the oxygen. But if you if you take a, that candle that's sort of glowing and you blow it gently, then actually you can cause it to light again. So you know, be careful and and don't forget in California, people will, will realize the Santa Ana winds are the big bugbear of, of California fires. Um, it's those winds which can be really quite devastating um, in allowing the spread uh, and the rapid spread of some of the largest wildfires. I also want to talk a little bit about the different types of wildfires, because we have the idea of surface fires, crown fires, and ground fires. And I think to a lot of lay people, it's just a wildfire. There's not a whole lot of differentiating between what those three are or how they're different. Yeah, they're quite, they're quite significantly different because very often fires start as a surface fire. So that means you're, you're burning, um, perhaps dead fuel on the ground. And because that fuel is on the ground, a lot of it, it may be dead. It would be, tend to be drier. So it's easier to start a fire in that surface. Those surface fires, depending on how much fuel can actually uh, burn quite slowly and not too hot. Um, now the problem then is that's, that's the way that many fires go. And there are uh, many different types of vegetation that can survive very well just having 
um, surface fires go through their system. Many pine forests, for example, or even eucalypt forests can actually uh, manage quite well if you have regular surface fires, which, if you like, get rid of the fuel on the ground. Um, it doesn't actually kill the plant, you know, the main trees in, in that system. On the other hand, if you have a, a large amount of organic matter on the ground, um, and it becomes very dry, it might sort of, the fire might get into the soil part of the, of the, of the system, go into what we call a ground fire. Those can smolder for a very long period of time and become quite a bugbear of trying to put a fire out. But the worst problem becomes if you um, translate from a surface fire, which might be easily containable, into uh, in a forest area, into what we call a crown fire. That means it goes up into the treetops. And then you can, if you like, spread the fire very much more quickly. And it spreads at different rates at different levels. So you might actually have a disconnect between fire going up in, in the crowns and fire on the surface. And of course, fires on the, on, in the crowns can be quite devastating. You can move very fast. You start putting a lot of, um, flaming embers up into the smoke and that can travel long distances and spot fire ahead of the of the main fire front so you have the potential of not only having a single fire front of it moving um in in a single direction all at one time but you're spotting ahead maybe up to two or three kilometers or a mile or two ahead and uh, and therefore you're starting many fire fronts at once and that becomes the real nightmare for firefighters um, because you can suddenly find yourself um, with a whole bunch of fires where you only started out with one, and 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 these flaming these flaming embers can be a real problem. And and so once if you translate into a crown fire, then you've got a much more serious situation. So I do want to shift gears a little bit and talk about how sort of the fires on Earth throughout deep history, because this is a really interesting uh, and huge portion of, of your newest book. Um, so how long have fires been happening on Earth? Well, probably for over 400 million years. I think what surprised me was that if you go into a geology textbook, that is looking at the history of Earth or any geology textbook, the one thing you won't find in the index is the word fire which always surprised me. And I remember it coming home to me a few years ago where I was at a, a conference in, in, in Vienna, and um, I was talking to an audience which included people who did climate modeling and all sorts of things, and I talked about fire through time, and they expressed the, the surprise that there was fire before humans. And I think that's very often the case. People don't realize that actually fire has been a natural part of the Earth system for, for a very long period of time. And when I first started out in this field, gosh, as a, as a, an, even as an undergraduate, fire was not even mentioned. And, and indeed, even today, if you ask most geologists, you know, how are you going to recognize fire in the fossil record, they wouldn't have any idea at all. And uh, even if you challenge them and say, well, actually, you can do it by looking at fossil charcoal, which is the remnants of the um, un not fully combusted plant material, most people will not be able to recognize charcoal in in a rock so you're faced with a you know a problem automatically where where people just don't realize its significance now when we i first started my research as a as a postgraduate i discovered some charcoalified conifer leaves well it was very exciting because these happened to be the oldest conifers that had until that time been discovered but what was more interesting, it turns out, in the long term, wasn't just the fact that I found the earliest conifer. 
it was that I found it preserved as charcoal. And so I started to think about fire in the particular systems I was looking at. In this case, it was about 300 million million years ago during the Carboniferous period, which was one of our major coal-forming periods. And people had always thought, well, coals are formed in very wet, swampy areas, and therefore you wouldn't think you would get fire. And indeed, there were publications which said, oh, you can't get fire in swampy areas, which, of course, we now know is not true. Um, you can ask somebody who lives down in the Everglades in Florida if you get fire, and uh, I think you'll find you do. So just because you're in a, what you might think is a very wet system, it doesn't mean to say that from time to time it doesn't dry a bit and you get, you've got a lot of fuel build up and you can get fire. So it got me thinking about how fire interacts with vegetation. Then, of course, it becomes quite interesting because not only you've got to think of how you're going to recognize the occurrence of fire, which is mattering finding the fossil charcoal. So you might say, you find these little black bits in the rocks, but what can you do with them? But it turns out that if you, well, you can do it today with a modern fire. If, if you if you look at any of the charcoal, and even if you, you're not near a fire and you sort of get fire from a barbecue um, charcoal, and you look at it under a hand lens, and you'll see that the anatomy of the plant is still preserved. Well, that in itself is interesting because if the anatomy is preserved, you can study it, for example, under under a microscope or even under something like a scanning electron microscope and work out what was being burned. So now you have two pieces of information. You not only know that there was a fire, you then also know what kind of plant is being burnt, so you know something about the vegetation. The next thing to say is, well, we've already said in talking about our fire triangle that one of the key elements of that fire triangle is oxygen. So one thing you need to have then is a certain amount of oxygen in the atmosphere for fires to actually start and spread. Well, it turns out that some experiments which were done um, by Andy Watson initially in the 1970s and then through Bob Berner and others um, through the 1980s, 90s, and then through Claire Belcher and others in the more recent times, it turns out that you need probably at least 15 to 17% oxygen in the atmosphere for there to be fire to spread. So here we have another reason for looking at charcoal. It's actually giving you an idea of atmospheric oxygen through time. And then it turns out that if you increase the oxygen above today's level, which is 21% in the atmosphere, then you can burn wetter plants. So, in fact, it becomes more easy to start and spread a fire. So here we have got a very interesting situation where you can even use the charcoal as an atmospheric oxygen indicator, at least for the last 400 million years. So that would be our starting point, that we can look at the charcoal record, we can see and use that to understand what vegetation is being burnt, and if we can do that, then we can begin to understand how did plants evolve different traits which allow them to cope with fire, or in some cases help promote fire because it helps their their, their different uh, ex- expansion. So that's the way we, if you like, we first start. So our earliest fires, you might think, are not going to happen until you've got plants living on land. So um, maybe 420 million years ago, perhaps a bit before, but the plants then were fairly small, so any fires would have been fairly small fires. Um, but so that's where, we, that, if you like, would be our starting point of the story. So 
charcoal, can you give us a quick primer on like why we are left with charcoal after a fire? A little bit more information about how okay. it forms and what it is exactly. Okay. If you think of it as a, if a lightning, if a lightning strike hits a tree, then there's an initial spot which is affected by that heat process. So that initial spot, there'll be the chemical reaction of the breakdown of the cellulose and lignin in the plant tissues. That, if you like, is carbon, um, hydrogen, oxygen involved in those, the elements of the, of cellulose and lignin. The, the breakdown products include these gases, as we said, of something like methane and carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide. Um, they mix together with the oxygen to actually combust. But And then for that combustion reaction creates more heat. Well, that heat will travel into the tree. So there's, if you like, a, a front of, of oxidation, of alteration in, in that process. Now, it's in other words, the whole of the tree doesn't suddenly get combusted. It's actually, it moves through the tree. So that's why if you if you started burning a plant and then put it in water and then you cut it, you'll find that the outside part is gone because it's, it's undergone that full chemical reaction. The next part will be altered, whereby a lot of the uh, organic compounds are gone, but the skeleton of the car, some of the carbon remains, and that's the charcoal, and then you'll get the inner part, which is uncharred. So if you like, you get a charcoal front as that, as that burning takes place. So that if you, if you have, for example, a bonfire, or a campfire, if you like, and you're putting wood on, and then at the end of that period, it goes out. Very often, you'll get ashes, which include pieces of, so the mineral material, which hasn't combusted, but also you'll get a lot of the small fragments of charcoal, which is material which hasn't completely um, undergone the oxidative reaction in, in burning. So that's the residue that you're left. Now that carbon, that, that material itself, that charcoal is, is, if you like, proportionally enriched in carbon and it's much more inert and therefore survives very well in, in, in the fossil record. That's, it's, it's lighter. It tends to float very easily. It gets transported and gets buried in sediment and therefore is easily dispersed and, and is found. Some of it's dispersed, obviously, smaller fragments are dispersed in the wind with the smoke plume, but the larger fragments tend to be moved by water and then deposited in different environments. And so you find charcoal actually in fossil record in all sorts of different rock types. Uh, it's just that most people wouldn't, wouldn't tend to recognize them because they couldn't tell necessarily the difference between a piece of charcoal and a plant which was blackened because of other processes. So that's often the difficulty. That, but certainly if you, you find a piece of charcoal in, the, in, in, in a rock, you look with a hand lens, you can see the anatomy of the plant very easily. And that will tell you that. And then also like charcoal, you might be familiar if you're an artist or if you're, if you're fiddling with a barbecue charcoal, you get your hands black. So that's very, the charcoal tends to be very brittle and um, makes a mark on paper very easily. And the same is the case with fossil charcoal. So it does occur very widely and in, in sometimes in very large abundance. I was quite surprised to find out that charcoal is abundant uh, in places in the fossil record because it is so brittle and I wouldn't have expected it to survive. Oh, it, it floats very well. well uh, again, that's a, there's a misunderstanding. If you take a piece of charcoal and you put it in water, it'll float on the surface and will actually transport very long distances without much breakup. 
Um, it depends on what the temperature was because your, your charcoal goes through different changes depending on the temperature achieved during that the charcoalification process. So initially, those as you go to three to 400 degrees centigrade, then the cell walls will fuse. But if you begin to increase the temperature to five or 600 degrees and more, then the, there'll be cracks that occur within that charcoal, which will cause that to break up more easily. So it, again, it depends on the, the temperature of the fire, which was going through the system, at which the charcoal was formed and a whole number of other processes of what, what were the different tissues? Because it's not only wood, which can become charred. It's also leaf material can become charred and even flowers which was a big surprise to me. Um, when we first started the research, people hadn't even imagined that flowers you know, could become a, formed as charcoal, but it is possible. And indeed, some of our um, the work done on the early history of flowering plants has come from charcoalified flowers, which has been quite an interesting development over the last 30 years or so. It's interesting because it, it seems like we can actually tell quite a bit about the plant, even though it was charcoal or turned into charcoal millions and millions of years ago, that in some cases, we can actually tell quite a lot about it. Yeah, I think one of the surprises to me is just the incredible detail of which you can find in some of these charcoalified flowers. I found a small little ovule of a plant of um, from about 325 million years ago in Scotland. And this, this little ovule is about a millimeter long. But under the scanning electron microscope, you can see that it's got a whole large, a large number of glandular hairs, and they're all preserved beautifully in charcoal. And uh, it's just exquisite. And and indeed, once you start looking at the anatomy of these plants under the microscope, they are beautiful. It always surprises me why so few people look at it because it is it is astounding material. And I suppose it's because it, it hasn't got the attraction of a, a large dinosaur bone or it's not got the attraction of a pretty shell that you can pick up in, in the fossil record or a shark's tooth. You're dealing with small black fragments, so they don't seem very sexy to look at. But actually, they can show so much detail and so much incredible – give so much incredible information that, uh, you know, I don't know why more people aren't looking at it. If you take, for example, some what some of the leaves we found, not only then you find charcoalified leaves, so that tells you something not only about what was burning, it tells you something about that there was more than 17% oxygen in the atmosphere. But in fact, the, the preservation of the stomata on the plants, those are the, the gas exchange pores, um, tell you something about the CO2, the carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere. So from a small charcoalified leaf, you can gain not only information about the nature of vegetation, the nature of fires, but also the nature of oxygen and carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and also in, in relation to that, something about the climate. Such a so, huge amount of information yeah, on such it, a little thing. I know. It's just astounding. And so one thing that I think the problem that we face is that fire science is, is the most, if you like, diverse of sciences. It incorporates physics, chemistry, geology, geography, a whole range of biology, and therefore it's not studied by one group of, of scientists. And I always, I've often said to people, I said, it's like it, most university departments have a fire department, but that's the only one that's not academic. It's the one that goes <laughs> to put out fires on campus. So um, 
you know, fires, fire science goes, is if you like, falls through the cracks. You know, you might have fire safety engineering, which is, you know, and then people say, well, how is that relevant to my biology? Or how is that relevant to my physics or chemistry? And then you find that people are studying, for example, you take charcoal, you'll find five or six or more different disciplines which look at charcoal. Some people use charcoal, as you see, in barbecues. Some people use charcoal um, as odor eaters, or some people use charcoal in, in medicines or think that, you know, they can ingest charcoal. Some people use charcoal for art materials. You know, so the number of people, there are lots of groups, but they very often only read their own literature. And so they don't realize that, you know, there's a lot of cross-fertilization of literature. Um, I've, I've often refereed papers where I said, well, why you've done that? It's already been done by five other groups of people in different disciplines because you don't tend to read things outside your own discipline. And it's got worse. You know, I, I, I think everyone says, oh, you've got more access to literature in the Internet. But actually, that's true, but it also makes people a bit lazy. And uh, and so you think, well, I've got these papers and they're in my field and they're relevant, but then they don't look into other fields, if if you like. But it's it's a quite an interesting thought that there's a lot of information out there that can help you understand how charcoal's formed and what you might learn from it. But it's all for, often in all sorts of different places. When I was looking for information to do an episode on fire, it didn't occur to me to look in the world of geology. It just doesn't seem connected. But uh, it turns out here we are. Well, yeah, I think then you've got to think about how man evolved. They've evolved into, well, we've only just started on the story of fire. So fire then has got a 400 million year history. And so you, as you develop and understand, you, you understand that through various periods of Earth history, you've had periods of low fire and high fire, depending on the atmospheric oxygen. We now know that periods, for example, during the Cretaceous, between about 140 and 50, and about 65 million years ago, you had a um, period of probably increasing oxygen above the modern level, where there were many more fires. Of course, that's the period when the dinosaurs are on the, on the Earth, you know. So, you know, it's very interesting. It's only in the last 10 years or so that people have been able to um, show scenes of dinosaurs wandering the landscape and running away from fire. That's actually quite a subtle change that's happened only in the last few years because people realize that this was a period when there were a lot of fires. But people then studying the phylogenies, that is, the understand the relationships of different groups of plants and looking at when different traits evolved in plants. So, for example, in pines, the, the development of very thick bark, which allows them to survive surface fires. If you look at that um, in terms of phylogeny, you find that the origin of that group of plants and developing that particular system was during this period of high fire. In other words, there are many groups of plants which evolved ways to cope with fire, which occurred during that period of high fire during the Cretaceous. So that in itself is becoming interesting so that you're finding that fire is a very important driver in the Earth system. You know, and we now believe that it actually helps regulate atmospheric oxygen. It also helps um, in terms of development of different groups of plants and animals. So fire has been a major um, feature of the Earth system before even humans came onto the scene. So that's the first thing to say. And so therefore, man evolved in a fiery landscape. 
I think the other the other interesting thing in terms of human evolution is that the period we evolved was after soon after the development of some of the large scale grasslands, the savannas. And, and people get very het up about savanna because, of course, it's where some of our, our favorite animals live, for example, in Africa. And people don't seem to appreciate the fact that these savannas need fire and fire to happen very regularly. Because if you have in those grasslands fires going through every 10 years or so, then they can, they actually stay as grassland. If you have a situation which you, you prevent fire going through those systems, then the, some of the trees can begin to, if you like, grow above those surface fire um, systems and, and, and change the nature of the, the vegetation from, if you like, initially uh, an open savanna into a much more closed forest. And so I suppose that's one thing to realize that man is evolving into this environment where there's a very mixed type of vegetation where fire is a natural part of the system and maybe one of the reasons why man got to one of the only groups of organisms to use fire um, and, and certainly the only group of, uh, to actually control fire to any extent. So I think that is, that's the first thing to say. The second is that there's been a misunderstanding in, in, even in conservation work that, that, you know, fire is, is, is a, is a bad thing. Fire gives you also a diversity in vegetation, um, which gives you not only diversity of plants. There are some plants that do very well following fire. Some need fire. Some of the finbos vegetation in Southern Africa, the, the proteaceae and so on need fire in order to, um, um, you know, develop and, uh, you know, some of the, some of the, um, flowers are actually, um, conditioned to, to only open when, when there is smoke from fire because their seeds then can be shed onto a bare landscape and actually do very well. So there are some plants which actually take advantage of fire. So, um, I think we have to think fire in a much more, um, diverse way than perhaps people have in, in the past. I think the other thing to say when I was going, talking about conservation is that people have often thought that some of these grasslands in Africa and even, for example, in Madagascar are kind of degraded forest. You know, in other words, they're given a, a very poor rap. But now we've realized that many of these grasslands are ancient and they do rely on fire. So in Madagascar, for example, it isn't just those, the rainforests, which have a, a great biodiversity, but many of the grasslands also have a, a very distinctive biodiversity, but also they need fire. So whereas the um, rainforests don't need fire, the grasslands do need fire. So that then becomes an interesting conservation problem of, of it comes into politics then, because if you in, you know, think that all fire is bad, you say, I'm going to ban fire then you're going to try and put out fire in systems and like in some of the grasslands, which need fire. And, and therefore you're going to alter them. You, you might be thinking you're doing good because of your conservation methods, but actually it might not be so as, as good as you think. The Madagascar example is, uh, I think, a good one because it speaks very clearly to how complicated the idea of fire management, whether it be fire suppression or um, creating small fires to help with environments that require them, but how difficult the topic can be to create regulation around, to create a management 
um, a management strategy around because different areas, even in the same country, can need very like drastically different um, interactions with fire in order to maintain the current ecosystem, in order to keep it healthy, or in order to uh, stop from introducing something that it actually would be very devastating to it. Yeah, I think we're. I think that's the com- one of the conversations that we need to have. Um, the the point until until now is that fire has often just come onto your news as a disaster, and then that's the end of the conversation. And and we need to think about it in, in a much more level headed way. We need to discuss fire to realize there are lots of different kinds of fire in different types of environment, in different parts of vegetation, in different parts of the world. And of course, many of these don't, you know, many of these types of vegetation and situations cross boundaries, not only um, boundaries of states or counties, but also national boundaries. And, and therefore, different policies in different countries can actually be quite significant. You can, if you look at the fire on, on, from satellite data, you actually, in some cases, can pick out um, national boundaries on where there is fire and where there's not fire. It's a very interesting situation because of different policies. Also, you can have a policy and policy which, unfortunately, might promote fire. Um, there are there are policies in in some countries. I better be careful what I say at the moment. But there are policies in some countries which say um, this forested area can't be logged. But if there was a fire in the area, you can go in and take the logs out because that's obviously destroyed now that vegetation, and you can take the logs out. Well, it so happens that it may be that there are some natural fires in a forest, but then sometimes those become a bit more prevalent because certain people are uh, promoting fire, if you like, in those environments, because they know that they can go in and take the logs out. Um, and there again, so there's, there's also the unintended consequences, for example, the people for in, in Indonesia, as you, as we probably know, is that there are major fires because people have drained the peat swamps, um, because they want to, um, go in and log. And then they drain the peat swamps. So not only then when fires start, uh, it, it's not just a problem of the vege- above ground vegetation burning, but it's also the fact that those peats burn. Now those peats are burning. They're creating huge quantities of smoke. Those smoke from some of the Indonesian fires can go across Malaysia, Singapore and Malaysia. And now we know that smoke from fires um, have two consequences. It actually can kill people. There's mortality from that smoke. But we also know from research done even in Indonesia that some of the people in the villages surrounding where these fires occur, if you're pregnant, it actually can cause um, deformity in children. Uh, because if the, the, the burning is taking place. So the person who's gone in to drain the swamp to take the logs out haven't realized that then that promotes fire, which causes um, problems with pregnant women, but also can kill um, people, you know, hundreds or thousands of, of miles away in another, in another country. So again, we need to think on a, on a global scale. And I think also people haven't thought about fire even in terms of, in that case, people have calculated the amount of CO2 going into the atmosphere from those fires. So now we have a situation where we need to think about climate forcing from fire. In other words, not only the fact that you've got smoke in the atmosphere, you can put carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. In some cases, you've got particulate carbon going onto the ice fields, which might affect the albedo, which will affect global warming. And so now we begin to see that fire has an impact far beyond just the fact that some plants or some vegetations are burning. 
we need to think about it as a part of the whole Earth system, and that's something which is probably only a an idea only a few years old. And so we've only the very start of our conversations. It must be so difficult to try and create these policies, knowing that there could be very different pros and cons or wins and losses, depending on what Zoom level you take. There could be a very clear benefit to having maybe periodic uh, ground fires to a local ecosystem. But if there is a place where lots of people live nearby and prevailing winds that tends to push that smoke, that could cause problems again. Um, and if you don't do that, you can potentially end up with larger, more serious fires that can threaten people and land, cause more smoke problems, yeah. feed into climate change. Like There's so many different levels you can look at this, and sometimes they really conflict. And, and also, this is happening in England, um, you know, where I live. I live in a county called Surrey. It's just south of London. And it's, for most people, it's, it's a very populated county. But people often even living here don't realize we're the most wooded county in, in England. And there's a lot of trees. <laughs> and we face a potential problem in, in, in our part of the world where at the moment fire is not, you know, thought about very much. But as climate is changing, we have periods of, of, of a long summer drought. We have the potential of really serious fires, which can affect infrastructure really quite significantly. And, and again, it's the same, it's the same problem. You know, people have stopped, for example, agricultural fire burning, um, you know, stubble burning, because again, the smoke creates a problem. Um, so, you know, and again, trying to say, well, actually, in Surrey, we need to have a prescribed fire through a forest. Nobody's going to accept that, you know, because, gosh, you know, they're worried about it getting out of hand and burning their homes down. So you you do have an issue. But I think you need to sit down now and discuss all the different stakeholders and look at the science, you know, develop the science, get the science more understood. I think that's the first thing to and that's a, a, one of the reasons why I wrote the book as I as I did, um, because I felt that you know most people, certainly geologists, had have no concept that fire was an important part of the Earth system, and indeed people even living on our you know today in very various environments tend to think of fire in a very negative way, and we we ought to sort of look at it in a, in a more holistic way. And I think with them, we can start some really decent conversations at various levels, not just on a local level, but on a uh, on a state level and also on a, a national level and work out different programs and different, not just not, not just terms of policy, but also maybe some research. Because w one of the big problems in getting research funding for working on fire is that it's so multidisciplinary and cross-disciplinary. And that is always very difficult. Multidisciplinary so, work is always a real challenge because you people bring different information to the table, but it also means that you have to learn how to talk to each other and learn where those pieces connect. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things that really changed my life that um, in 2007, um, David Bowman from Australia and Jenny Belch from America put together a group of us um, called the Pyrogeography Research Group. Um, which met in Santa Barbara for several years. And the idea was, was to take somebody from each of the major disciplines of fire and get them into a room and talk to each other. <laughs> and so we had people working on the physics of fire, the chemistry of fire, how you recognize fire using satellites, the biology of fire. I was in the geology, of, if you like, of fire and, 
and so on. So you had somebody in all the different topic areas and we, we sat down together and actually the, we were put into the room for two weeks and said, look, write a paper about how fire works on earth. So we wrote a paper in, in science in 2009, fire in the earth system. And then we continued for the next five years looking at different aspects of fire and mankind and so on. And that's be, it was enormously important for me because it made me think of fire in so many different ways that I hadn't thought about before and, and educated me unbelievably. I couldn't, you know, I can't, I can't believe how lucky I was to be part of that group. I've learned so much. But on the other hand, a lot of people who are working on modern fire hadn't understood the, the deep time history of fire and how that has impacted on the earth. So we all learn from each other. And I think that's the key. I, I've been to conferences where there have been a lot of people working on fire, but they've only been interested in their own one little aspect. You know, how do I develop a satellite to um, see this particular feature or, or so on? Whereas I think we need to be thinking in a, because we tend to be more comfortable in our own field, either as a, you know, a physicist, a biologist, a geographer or a geologist, we tend to stick to our own group, uh, and not talk. But I've, I've, I've felt that the importance is to, to do this on a cross-disciplinary way. So we organized in London a couple of years ago, a Royal Society meeting where we brought people from all around the world, from different countries, from different experience, in different um, aspects of disciplines, to talk about fire and humans and about our interaction, particularly during a period of climate change, of how we are going to cope with fire in the, in the future. And that was, that was really illuminating. And, uh, and I think that those kind of, of interactions are great. But we need to take it to the broader public. We need to, you know, have these discussions elsewhere. I was earlier last year at Kew Gardens. They have a, uh, a publication called the, the, the State of the World's Plants. And one of the features of the conference to launch last year's report was they had a session on wildfire. And to be surprised to me that many of the people working in plant conservation hadn't actually thought about fire. And so even, even areas where you would imagine that people would have thought about fire for whatever reason, they haven't. And so, again, another point of, 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 of doing this book is to hope, you know, hopefully it might capture some people's imagination and get people talking about fire in a broader way. We're just about out of time, but I wanted to ask, because I'm just a bit curious, what is the largest fire we know about or have evidence for in the history of the planet? Is there something like a, a continent-sized fire no. that we've seen evidence for? <laughs> Funnily enough, uh, Talking about this, that's the one thing I remember when the idea of a global wildfire happened at the, the Cretaceous tertiary boundary, you know, when the extinction of the dinosaurs and that became a popular idea. And I thought, oh, at last fire is on the, on the, you know, on the record. Fire is sexy. <laughs> but I, but I don't think that that was true. And indeed, there are other, other, um, continent wide fires which have been suggested recently. But I'm, I'm sorry, but they're not going to happen in the way that people think because, it, it, fires just don't sort of break out across all types of vegetation at once. It doesn't happen like that. And uh, in fact, because we have such diversity in vegetation, diversity in fuel loads, diversity in the nature of the fuel, of dryness and wetness of the fuel, you're unlikely to get a continent-wide fire. You can get very large-scale fires, as some which the you know the size of countries, small countries, or even the size of a state, it's possible. But even then, not all of that vegetation will be burnt. 
one thing that people need to think and realize is that when we have fires, they go through the system and often creates a mosaic. It creates areas which are burnt and areas which are not burnt. It doesn't actually destroy everything. And it certainly doesn't necessarily destroy or, and consume all of the vegetation at once anyway. So if you go into an area, if you go to your Fort McMurray fire and you go to that area now, you'll see lots of standing trees. You won't see, you know, sort of 200 square miles of nothing, you know, because it doesn't consume everything. And so, again, we have to be bit careful and thinking of such continent-wide scale fires. It, it might sound sexy, but actually, most often the, the, the evidence is not really there. And, uh, but, you know, the problem is, is that most people have very limited understanding or experience of fires. I'm assuming that the advent of satellite technology is giving us a new way to kind of look at fires and how they behave on a scale that we couldn't really see before. Yeah, I think it's transformed how we think about fire. I, I do believe that over the last 30 years, you know, the idea of, of you know getting that satellite data from MODIS and so on has really transformed how we see fire in terms of where it occurs, how frequently it occurs, the maps you now can produce seeing fire on a, on a daily basis or weekly, monthly or yearly basis is quite astounding. And of course, that data is available online for people to go and see. And I think that's what's very exciting. It's not just a matter of um, us getting the data is much more easily available and, and you realize the scale even seeing the now the ability to actually image fires at night on a global scale is quite interesting i'm assuming as well the ability to watch the regrowth patterns of large-scale areas that have been hit by by large fires to be able to see which parts are recovering how they're recovering the patterns by which they start to recover would be quite interesting as well yeah no it's huge and and i think that um we're we're at a very exciting stage in fire science we're, we're at a stage where people are getting new toolkits new ability to look at fire uh, both in the modern, in the in, in the past, in the future, in modeling, in satellite imaging, uh, and so on, that we're now beginning to, you know, I think it, it heralds a new exciting period in fire science work. And I just hope that it can encourage young people to go into the fields, you know. But again, the problem being is where do you go? Because it's so multidisciplinary. And, you know, but have have thought that most of the interesting developments are often at the boundaries of subjects. So, you know, have a bit of excitement, go into something slightly different and uh, not just follow the same old track, because I think there is a lot to learn for the future. Andrew, thank you so much. Really interesting book and a really interesting conversation with you today. Thank you very much. If you uh, would like to learn more about Andrew Scott or his books, including his most recent book, Burning Planet, The Story of Fire Through Time, you can, as always, find more information on the show notes for this episode, which you can find at scienceforthepeople.ca. We wanted to throw a podcast recommendation your way, since we assumed, dear podcast listener, that you're always on the lookout for another great podcast to plug into, as we are. If you haven't already, we definitely suggest checking out Story Collider. Every episode, you hear true, personal stories told by excellent storytellers about the very real ways science impacted their lives. Hear stories from scientists, writers, comedians, actors, and performers, including some familiar voices you've heard before on this show, including Rose Eveleth, Danielle Lee, and David Dobbs, among many others. I just finished listening to Story Collider's Pi Day special with Ken Ono and Piper Heron. 
an episode with both laugh-out-loud moments and sobering reflections on the work we still have to do to make science, math, and technology an inclusive space. It's a great episode of a great podcast. Check it out. Storycollider.org or search Story Collider in the podcatcher of your choice. Before we end today, we wanted to check in with the organizers of the March for Science in advance of this year's march taking place on April 14th. With me is Dr. Caroline Weinberg, a New York City-based public health educator and researcher. She has worked with a wide range of organizations, from small tech startups to large public health initiatives in the U.S. and internationally. Caroline has developed, established, and run several educational and advocacy programs focused on confronting social determinants to health. She was a co-chair of the first March for Science and is the interim executive director of the March for Science organization. Caroline, welcome to Science for the people. Thanks for having me. So let's start for anybody who doesn't know, I'm sure that's a small portion of our audience, but just in (laughs) case, what is the March for Science? The March for Science um, is a nonpartisan movement focused on uh, advocating for equitable evidence-based policies that serve all communities. Uh, It started as a march last year on April 22nd and evolved from that one really powerful viral moment into a lasting movement advocating for science. So how did the march get started last year? Because it it did have kind of an interesting origin story. Uh, (laughs) A lot of people being really angry. Um, The So um, it it went viral, I think, on like January 24th of last year. And basically, a lot of people having different conversations in different social media places kind of spontaneously converged into one conversation. Um, and it took off on Twitter and the uh, account went from having um, maybe like 50 followers to 20,000 in a couple of hours and then kept building from there. And it seemed like what, and, and it originally started with an event in DC. And then as soon as the, the DC event was announced, things started, uh, Martis and announcements started popping up all over the world. It was like all of these people had just kind of been waiting and wanting to organize around science. And we're just waiting for kind of that spark that kicked it off. And once that was there, this just incredible wave of passionate advocates, and it turned it into a remarkable event. So interesting to me, the conversation that's happened over the last couple of years. And we saw this a little bit uh, in previous years in Canada, because Canada has had its own trials and tribulations, specifically with the previous federal government and uh, science funding and, and concerns around how science was being used or not being used. Um But it's been interesting to see over the last year, year and a half, this growing interest in, in science as, as political, in, in the political backings of science and how important it is to our political system. And I think that's interesting in part because there's a lot of, of scientists out there that really resist anything political and try and separate the two. Yeah, um, the when the when the march first took off, uh, there was a lot of conversations around how how science should stay out of politics and science is not political, and we're going to violate the sacred public trust in scientists as objective if we dare to kind of acknowledge that science is a political issue and that scientists should be involved in policy. And what the and kind of what we learned over the course of the march as we built this incredible coalition of partners and advocates um, that covered that 
ran across the entire spectrum. I think 25% of the people who attended the march were scientists and the rest were non-scientists. Um, our partner organizations range from, um, you know, large scientific societies to education uh, associations to firefighters to just kind of everyone. And what it really showed is that like science, science is political and belongs in policy and that people want that to happen. And evidence bears that out. Like the people, people trust science. The recent studies have shown that people trust scientists and want them involved in policy and politics. And science is inherently political. Like who, who gets to perform science is political. Who science benefits is political. Science the policies that science can can help us kind of craft them to benefit all communities like it's just it's it's time for scientists to kind of stop pretending that it's possible to stay out of politics in all of this kind of we're at that point because scientists are people and people have natural biases of their life experience and the things they expect from the world it's you have to have a diverse a diverse range of scientists in order to see things from all of those different angles exactly so the plan for this year, we're um, last year was a, a really amazing gathering of people showing support for science and what about science was important to them and how we could improve it. And this year, we're really working to point that energy towards active change. So we're going to be doing live advocacy initiatives at the event where people can, um, you know, take action by calling their representatives or sending emails or tweeting at them during the day. Um, and it's really, and, and it's really going to focus on encouraging people to hold themselves accountable and also hold their representatives accountable. So while we are, because it's an election year this year, there's been a, a lot of focus on get out the vote, which we're working a lot on as well. There's been, we're having, um, registration tables at our events and those will be happening across the country. And we're doing a lot of initiatives just throughout the year in mobilizing people to vote and to get out the vote in November to vote for pro science candidates. We're not endorsing any candidates, but just in general, we're encouraging people to be aware of the science positions of who they vote for. <laughs> Maybe find out if they think climate change is real. Um, and, but another, but we can't allow it to become a narrative where your one kind of civic action is voting and then you don't have to do anything again for two years. So we're working really hard to make sure that people are holding their legislators accountable year round by making that, um, a major focus of what we're doing at the event this year. So continuing to have people take action while they're at the event and the week after the day before the event on April 13th, there's going to be a Hill day where people across the country will go and advocate to their um, legislators. We're uh, really just trying to make sure that people continue to make sure that science is part of the conversation. And that's really the focus um, one of the things that we're focused on at, at this event. And um, it's also Citizen Science Day. Uh, so we're using the opportunity to help strengthen the relationships between the scientific community and the general public and encouraging people to kind of get out and actively participate in science in their communities. I love the idea of having people make some of those 
take some of those steps uh, during the march to contact the representatives. And I think that's a really good way for people to take that first step. Because I I think for many people, the idea of picking up the phone or writing an email to the representative rather than just signing a petition or sending that blanket email is really scary and probably makes some people really anxious. What do they expect? Are they going to get shouted at if they do that? Who are they going to get on the other line? I'm sure it's something that holds a lot of people back. Not quite sure how to how to contact the representative or what to expect. Totally. Um, we've found that, um, I mean, the it's very easy to get frustrated because you feel like you're shouting into a void sometimes. And so we, we work with a couple of different uh, organizations and companies to develop platforms that make it easy for people to contact their representatives. So it used to be that you would have to, you know, go to the DACA websites or whatever the equivalent is in different countries and hunt down the contact information and call them and kind of be, be fumbling around a little bit. And now, you know, we have programs on our website where you just enter your zip code and it'll immediately connect you to your local um, elected official and give you a sample email that you can send and a sample script that you can send and just making it easier for people, empowering people to use their voice basically and making it, making it easier as people kind of ease into this, ease into advocacy when, which is a new phenomenon for a lot of people. I mean, they've, the events of the last year have, have greatly motivated a lot of people who used to kind of not be involved and we're trying to, to make it easy for them to, to participate and use their voices. Um, cause it, it shouldn't have, it shouldn't have taken the events of the last year to push us to this point. And we want to make sure that people don't get, uh, fatigue and that they continue to stay mobilized regardless of kind of what's, what's happening brightest in the news. So the March this year is April 14th. Mm-hmm. Where can people go to find more information about the marches that might be near them? So um, there's currently more than 200 marches organized around the world. And information on all of them can be found at marchforscience.com slash 2018. Um, and that's information on links to where the marches are, their Facebook pages, their fundraising, their merchandise, um, everything you can do to support them locally. And then post-March, how you can continue to follow these local organizers and advocates to make sure that we continue science advocacy throughout the year. Thank you very much, Caroline. It's been a pleasure. And I hope there are many signs for the people listeners that show up at at the March and uh, hopefully with excellent signs. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot. If you want to learn more about Caroline Weinberg or the March for Science, we have links to get you started in the show notes for this episode, which, as per usual, you can find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. 
You can find out more about Skeptic at Skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 